Hi, I'm your host, Kimberly Thomas-Tigg, and you're listening to Signalize, a Dazzle for Rare podcast. Whether you're a patient, advocate, caregiver, or a clinician, Signalize is your source for good news, personal stories, events, and the things that Rare and Associated Communities care about. Follow Signalize and Dazzle for Rare at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, R-A-R-E, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll post episode links, updates, and more. Hello, David. Welcome to Signalize, the Dazzle for a podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing good. Feeling the uh, feeling the cold a bit more today. I think it's uh, winter or autumn definitely is here, but I feel like winter's here. The heating's gone on. <laughs> I've given in. It's too late. <laughs> it's, it's finally hit us. I'm glad that you were able to make some time to chat this morning. Um, one, because you're a super nice person and I like talking to you. This is really our first kind of like chat chat, yeah. but we've talked on the interwebs. Uh, so it's really good to see you face to face and actually be chatting with you. For folks at home who don't know David, uh, he is the business development manager at Rare Revolution magazine, an ultra rare patient speaker, and a trustee of the Mitro Phenoff support. Did I say that right? Close enough. <laughs> okay. No, what is the actual pronunciation? Uh, Mitrofenoff. Wow. Mitrofenoff. I think we got it. So do you want to expand a little bit about that and tell us a little bit more about you as a person? Thank you for, for the intro. Obviously, really nice to be here. So I'm David. I'm 33. I live with an ultra rare disease, as I already mentioned, called occipital horn syndrome. It's in the same sort of family of things as Ehlers-Danlos. That's where people might have heard of that instead of um, occipital horn syndrome. Uh, and it's also linked to something called Menkes disease. Um, alongside that, I also have POTS, which is a, a really common comorbidity of you know, connective tissue disorders and a few other things. So um, I've been living with them, obviously, for a very long time now. And and trying to sort of do my best to learn more about it, to try and meet other people with it, advocate, I guess you could say. And yeah, that's kind of what I've been doing. Um, I've been working in the rare disease space for uh, just over four years now for the magazine, which has been a really fun journey up, up to this point. And obviously, yeah, doing lots of public speaking for pharmaceutical companies or charities and things. So yeah, quite a, a mix of stuff going on, but enjoy it all the same. Yeah, you're a busy fellow. Like, you know, I don't know if you know Alan Thomas from Ataxia and me in Wales, but we have a joke that Alan is everywhere. He's like omnipresent. And so you're, you're kind of, from my view, from the outside, you're almost kind of also <laughs> omnipresent because it's like I log on to social media and I'm like, oh, there he is again. <laughs> In a good way, in, in a good way. That's really cool, actually. It is good to have a presence. And really, when people have more like face and name recognition, it also helps them associate with the condition better. So yeah. that's really great for patients. And you touched there on occipital horn having some relationship to Ehlers-Danlos. Now, I have Ehlers-Danlos. I have a hypermobility type of the 13 types of EDS. And this is the first time I've heard about that. So you don't have to go into great detail, but can you tell us just a little bit more about how that overlaps? Uh, I'll try and keep it as sort of brief as I can. But so just for a bit of context of kind of why I was linked to it. So when I was about, well, obviously growing up, you know, even up, up as a baby and a toddler, um, I was originally diagnosed with, with EDS uh, when I was about three, I think. Um, I don't remember it, but I was about three. They couldn't work out whether it's the sort of classical EDS or the hypermobile one. So the hypermobile one, as far as I know, is kind of the more common EDS or the one that's more prevalent, certainly in the UK, it seems, uh, type three. Um, that's what I was originally diagnosed with at Great Ormond Street a long time ago. So occipital horn syndrome is similar because it's still connected tissue, but the way they differ is it's like a copper uh, transport. That's that's essentially what occipital horn syndrome is. So 
my one is um, not enough copper. And then Wilson syndrome, which is another rare disease, is too much copper. So that's kind of the opposite of that, basically. What I have is meant to be, you know, one of 20 people in the world living with it. I'm convinced there might be more people that have maybe had a similar pathway to me where they've been diagnosed with EDS or something different or not have any diagnosis full stop. So I'm convinced there's probably more than 20 of us. I I found six people, so I haven't found 20, but there's a big overlap and it was considered one of the really rare subtypes of EDS um, before the classifications changed about seven or eight years ago, whenever it was. So it used to be considered one of them, you know, ultra rare EDS subtypes. Now it's its own thing. So I think it was EDS type nine or something like that originally. Funny enough, I got my actual di- the, the genetic diagnosis pretty much just before or just after the classifications changed. So just the way the timing was. But um, yeah, so it used, it used to be considered one of the the rare subtypes but now it's its own thing but there's a lot of overlap and lots of the kind of genetic makeup and like how my body looks and how my body kind of performs I guess is very similar to someone with EDS apart from a few little differences. Wow uh, you know it's funny I joke with my husband that when I hear something new in rare disease I'm always kind of shocked because you sometimes feel like you talk about it so much that you hear so much and so you're like wait there's something I haven't heard about EDS that's that's great. Okay, so I'm I'm taking all that on board because one thing that I've noticed with EDS, once I became aware of it, I started to see EDS everywhere and it felt like there are so many people with EDS. I I keep thinking if we're all over the place, people with EDS or with associated conditions like Marfan syndrome and, you know, it sounds like occipital horn as well. If we're all over, how do we not know more about these conditions? How do we not have sort of a better network to really connect everyone and really understand the nuances between the different connective tissue changes or the variations? So that's just fascinating to me. The other part of that is when I talk to other rare disease communities, EDS comes up so much. So what is the real prevalence of the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. And it just feels like I know there's a lot of research being done, you know, especially in the UK and in the US, looking at like, is there a gene variant for hypermobility type? Uh, We don't have the answer on that yet, but it sounds like we're getting closer. Um, That was like a tangent. It was a bit of an aside about just how much connective tissue affects our bodies and how much we sort of overlap between communities. Definitely. It also kind of brings me back to Dazzle Ferrer and why we do this is that there are so many communities. So if we think of rare disease as being something like seven to 8,000 rare diseases that we currently know about, those are individuals and they have their own communities. But so often we overlap in terms of, for instance, people with EDS oftentimes have gastroparesis. So that's another common comorbidity. And sometimes people will say, well, don't be talking about the comorbidities because it's not really relevant to rare disease. I very much disagree with that because right here we're talking about sort of POTS and how that is playing a role in both of our lives as, as people who have something to do with connective tissue. And there are these different links. So a lot of communities will, you know, be rare. But within those communities, you know, patients have a lot of overlapping comorbidities with, say, non-rare communities. So sometimes when I talk to not to rare leadership, they'll say, well, I'm not really interested in collaborating with a community that's not rare, mm-hmm. where they're focusing on a common comorbidity. Yeah. So they, you know, they, they are hesitant to kind of work with those non-rare communities, but tying what ties them together. And so I see that 
hesitance, but do you see communities like our rare disease communities where they're really embracing working with, say, gastroparesis communities or diabetes communities or metabolic syndrome communities? Broadly speaking, like through my work and through my own sort of life, I have seen a lot more overlap. Well, maybe a good example would be probably since COVID has happened, if you want to call it like long COVID, which just seems to be the, the name for it. Um, so long COVID mimics a lot of what um, loads with lung COVID seem to be developing POTS or they seem to have gone down the sort of the urology route like me who also catheterizes so there's a big overlap with that which is obviously not rare in the slightest. Lots of people with lung COVID have what you would call ME or chronic fatigue syndrome. Again it's not rare at all but there's a lot more research and things like certainly now since COVID there's a lot more research into ME, ME and how it's kind of impacting people's lives. So I think that's probably my best example would be probably from COVID, just how that's kind of overlapped with other conditions that have been around for a long time and have had, kind of, you know, ME is a good example where it's not rare at all, but it seems to be drastically underfunded. I think more conditions do need to kind of work together because more often than not, either the rare one can learn from the non-rare comorbidity or vice versa. And I think that, you know, EDS is probably a really good example where like EDS collectively isn't really that rare anymore. It's, it's still rare, but it's not anywhere near as rare as it was you know, two decades ago. Now the sort of research has come a long way and the sort of the clinicians are a lot more aware of it now. The EDS has probably got, I can probably think of seven or eight comorbidities without even trying. And that tells you everything. If someone is presenting a certain way, let's call EDS rare because it is still rare. But I'm saying if that's the rare part and then things like POTS aren't rare at all and gastroparietis is sort of rare, but I know loads and loads of people with that. So if you're going to have EDS at the top and then go down and think of the non-rare things, you can, everyone can learn so much. I don't know why there is still a, a hesitance to do it because it makes sense. It does make sense. And there is, you know, and this is anecdotal experience on my part. So what I've noticed in reaching out to um, organizations of all sizes, I find that the larger organizations seem to have the most hesitation in welcoming comorbid communities and saying, well, actually, we have a lot in common and we can really benefit by um, doing research to, together or we could really benefit by finding out really how prevalent this rare condition might be. So for instance, with EDS, maybe there are a lot of undiagnosed people in the POTS community who would actually really benefit by outreach from EDS communities saying, we really share this in common. And while POTS is is not rare, maybe we're missing people who also belong in the EDS community. (laughs) By, By not having that outreach and that collaboration, I feel like we're missing a lot of people. Yeah, it's true. I think that as a sort of slight tangent, but I think it's probably still relevant is that like social media has helped quite a bit because just for myself, I guess when I was three, obviously that was pre social media, like that was 30 years ago when I was three. So when I was told as a three, or my parents were told, you know, when I was three that I had EDS, like they didn't know what EDS was and just kind of like Googled it and so I'm probably never going to meet anybody with that. And then now, like 30 years on, like I've met hundreds of people physically in person with EDS, let alone online. So that kind of community has opened up as well. So not only is it collaborating with other comorbidities, it's also online because you wouldn't, you know, most people get their information about rare diseases and chronic illnesses and things. It's probably from social media now, not even Google. I've known loads of people have had their second or third condition almost from finding other people online and learning from them and then then getting tests for things and actually then that they have it as well so i think that that's another important part of it 
That's really funny that you mentioned that because when I started Dazzle Ferrer like six years ago, I didn't have any diagnosis. So I was just basically this complex nuisance patient who I was getting information from neurologists saying that everything was somatoform or it was it was a mental thing that I actually didn't have anything wrong with me. And yet I started having seizures at like 21 or 22. I've had like a lot of really weird health events. Um, a lot of stuff was going on that is just full stop, not normal. And I had been looking forever to get some kind of an answer because I knew it wasn't just a psychological condition. And let's be fair in saying that psychological conditions are as serious and deserve the same validation that any other condition give, is receiving currently. So if it had been psychological and there was a good basis for that, that would I would be fine with that. But I knew that there was a medical basis because a lot of things were happening that you can't just sort of think yourself into, I think, like bleeding. <laughs> you know, you don't just kind of vibe into like bleeding a huge amount by going, ah, oh, this, I'm focusing on this. So when I started Dazzle Ferrer, I didn't have any DS diagnosis. I didn't know what it was. I learned about it six years ago. And almost exactly two years later, I was diagnosed with EDS. And so when there was that moment of silence before the consultant tells you that you have something or that they suspect you have something, it wasn't that big of a deal for me because I'm like, oh, I actually already know what EDS is. <laughs> you know, I know a fair amount of it. And so many people since we started have actually messaged me and said, I didn't know about XYZ condition. And then I was later diagnosed with it. And I already knew I had a community. Like I already felt comfortable because I already had an understanding. Mm -hmm. I guess that really speaks to, you know, by sharing our personal experiences and by talking about what we've been through, what our pathway has been, what diagnosis looks like, what treatments might look like. That provides people who are not there yet, but who will be soon with kind of a cushion, you know, something to, to kind of fall back on and, and it softens the blow a little bit. With Rare Revolution Magazine, do you find a lot of stories like that where people have had a really long diagnostic journey and maybe the internet has helped to lead them to a pathway or has helped them bring up, yeah. you know, the, what, the, what it might be? Definitely. I think um, I should probably know the answer, but I'm, I'm pretty sure, isn't it? Seven years, I think, is the average time it takes to get diagnosed with rare disease um i might be off on that i'm sure it's seven in my head it might be wrong correct me if i'm wrong but um whatever the number is it's probably too long so it doesn't really matter what the number actually is but i think that you know you and i are lucky that we live in the uk and obviously you know no healthcare system is perfect you know nhs is not perfect and I, ne I never claim they will be but it's still amazing in reality um and we're lucky that we're here and you know we're not directly paying for it um you know not at the point of view she's not paying for it anyway um so you, you know we're very lucky like if you compare ourselves to people in maybe countries where the healthcare system's not as good or even in america where people i, I don't know as much obviously you're far more versed than it than i am but you know from what i do know like about how american health system works it is so expensive and depend on what insurance plan you've got and i don't you know i don't i'm not an expert far from it but um you know just living in the us would be a barrier for a lot of people if you can't access what you need so I think where you're accessing your healthcare is really important and you know you could go there with all the knowledge of knowing about these different conditions but if you can't afford to pay for it you know that's that's why I think a lot of people are living with conditions completely undiagnosed in other parts of the world but even just my condition where there's meant to be 20 of us or around that you know these kind of ultra rare conditions not even just mine but all the other ultra rare conditions where it affects literally a handful of people in the globe like how do you know that because if you're 
you know, parts of Africa and Southeast Asia and other, you know, South America, possibly where maybe there isn't as much going on in the healthcare system. Like, how do you know these people aren't living with these rare conditions if you if they don't know where to look? So, um, I do think a lot of people wait far too long or don't ever get a diagnosis. So they go, you know, could be waiting years. That's one thing, but loads of people will also never get the diagnosis as well. That's the other sort of sad reality. That is very true. Um, and you do make a good point with the United States that with the cost of healthcare and the cost of diagnostic medicine, so getting an MRI scan or getting a CT scan um, or getting other types of testing, for people who don't have good insurance, that's just unreachable completely. Mm -hmm. So I, I always tell people when they say, well, it sounds like you're not getting very good care on the NHS. I say the NHS... It, it is, I am very grateful for it. It takes into the account the needs of the many and not necessarily the needs of the few, mm -hmm. but we are able to get what we need as a society. And so I'd rather that be our starting point. I think right now we sort of look at some of some communities as being like little pockets where, you know, the NHS or other or researchers don't want to focus on that pocket because there's not enough return on their investment. There's not enough people for them to look at developing drugs and things like that. But if you look at us as a much larger group of human beings who engage in society here in the UK or in the US, there should be more effort to improve, even on a baseline, improve the lives of people who have chronic and rare conditions. And also to really take seriously people who are undiagnosed, because for me, it was 38 years to diagnosis. Yeah. Like that's a really long time, and uh, it's true in the UK it is seven years. So you're you're statistically right on that, as far as I am aware. In the US, it's supposed to be four. I'm gonna call BS on that because I was born in the US, and it took moving to the UK to get a diagnosis. That's not why I moved here. Of course, I moved here because I married my husband. We started a family, and then I started to go through my medical records and saw. There was a lot of stuff there that I'm like, wait a second, this isn't all in my head. But it was an accident that I got diagnosed with EDS. It was just happened to be a locum filling in for my GP who noticed the way I move my body and was like, are you hypermobile? And then we kind of went through some of the party tricks that EDS patients will probably be familiar with. Yeah. She was like, right, that's a thing that that you should you should get that scene too. And I thought, you know, even though I knew EDS existed, I was like, We're, I'm never going to get a diagnosis. It's just unreachable for me because the lack of understanding, the lack of, you know, people even knowing what the Biden score is. And so for listeners, the Biden score is, is like a nine point system by testing uh, the joint flexibility of different joints. So the thumb joint, uh, the fingers, the degree to which an elbow bends backward, you know, the, the degree to which the hips are mobile. And so a lot of clinicians I've seen are like, I don't know what that is. Or if they do have like a vague awareness of it, they do it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you don't bend it that way. You know, they were trying to do that with my son. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, <laughs> please don't like break my child. Let's do this correctly. So I've had to show people like how to like do this. And it's crazy that when you're a patient, you're having to, to do these things. But I've gotten off topic. The original topic there <laughs> was we are very lucky to have the NHS. And it's not going to necessarily cater to you or to me or anyone else very specifically, but very broadly, we definitely could benefit from just like best practices on how we approach people with a diagnosis, how we approach undiagnosed people without almost immediately suggesting they seek therapy, you know, psychological therapy, 
and just stop asking for anything else. So that's a pervasive problem that totally deserves its own podcast episode, I think. We could probably spend another half hour talking about that. Uh, We kind of touched on, you know, one in 17 people or the prevalence of rare disease in the UK, about one in 17 people with that seven-year pathway. My thought was, people often say, why do you get into advocacy? So, you know, in your case, you are in the ultra-rare category. But not everybody is called to action. Not everybody wakes up and says, I want to lead a life of service to other people who are like me, or I want to raise awareness. There are a lot of people who get a diagnosis and are quite happy to not talk about it, to not join support groups, to not engage in any way and sort of have this silent relationship with their condition. But you're definitely out in front. People know you. You have a presence, and that's really great. I that's amazing because it really takes a lot of, in my mind, courage to talk. You know, courage to speak up. What was the thing that put you in that position? Like, what brought you to a place where you weren't just going to sit there in silence anymore? You want you were going to go out and engage with people. Well, yeah, I'll break it down into two. So the kind of the working part. You know, I'll be totally honest, I didn't plan to work in rare diseases kind of through circumstances. So originally, like years ago, I wanted to work in finance and kind of realised I wasn't able to kind of keep up with the, the sort of physical and I guess the emotional demands of working all them long hours. And it just wasn't really for me. So I ended up going down this route because I thought it's something that I'm passionate about and it's something that I can do. I was realising that it's probably what I was meant to be doing, maybe. I think the online sort of advocacy side is again kind of split into two so I think that you all know as well as me that there are not enough men talking about health anyway like rare disease or not rare disease related but just in general like men are notoriously bad about talking about health again online or in person so um, I thought once I got this kind of ultra rare diagnosis I thought it would be cool to try and you know I knew that I wouldn't have a massive community of people because that's the whole point it's an ultra rare condition but Certainly, the, you know, like we always mentioned about POTS and some of the other stuff, like that's not as rare by any means. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to meet loads of people online. So that's kind of been fun uh, for me to meet some more people. And um, I'm not really a kind of support group person. That's not that's probably where I do draw the line. Um, each, each their own. I think everyone uh, picks and chooses what kind of parts of advocacy like broadly that they enjoy and um, the support group things not really for me but I'm happy to kind of use my online channels and and do talks and things and podcasts you know this is probably the way that I enjoy doing it more um that's just my own sort of personal opinion on it but um I think it's just really important that people that, that want to get involved do get involved because for the ultra rare side of it going back to that point what I'm hoping this isn't me meant to sound like I'm a hero by any means but the way I see it is that you know, nothing will change with my, you know, in my lifetime, nothing, there's no drastic research can ever be done. There's no interest really from pharmaceutical companies, nothing's going to change from that respect. But if I can at least lay some sort of foundation down so that maybe in, I don't know, 20 or 30 years time, somebody else gets diagnosed in my condition, whether it's a young person or as an older person, they can look for all the stuff that I've done. That's a bonus, isn't it? Someone else has already you know, i.e. me has already done something for them to try and help. And I think that's why a lot of people do it is because, especially in the ultra air one where there's no, you know, academic research, where there's no interest from big companies, if anybody is putting some stuff out there and sharing some of their sort of medical points or, you know, videos about what their life is like or anything really, like, for me, that's that's cool because they're putting themselves out there and they're hopefully going to make somebody else's life easier in a decade or two decades' time because that's why I do it. 
plus I find it fun just connecting with people and you know realizing that there's a lot of people that might not be you know people with pots is a perfect example like you can you can have pots just on its own and that be your only condition or more commonly it's with other stuff as well and obviously I've met loads of great people online especially in the in the sort of pot space and met them in real life and I think that's just really fun like having rare diseases isn't, isn't fun so like having the opportunity to meet other people that understand what it's like is a bonus and equally if you don't want to do anything you know, like you've already pointed to there's loads of people that are living with rare diseases or, or disabilities that don't do anything online or don't aren't part of support groups or have no interest about helping medical students and equally that's fine as well you don't you don't have to that's very true that there i mean we're all valid whatever in whatever way we experience our condition and the things that we go through in life so there are times when i have friends who i know have a a, a rare condition or at least an uncommon condition and i do want to grab them and and have conversations but also there is that having to understand and respect that there are people who don't want that to be defining they don't want the people around them to define them by that particular thing and i get that because there is also a certain amount of like tokenism like saying this is our token rare employee or this is our chronically ill employee we can talk to them if we have a question about how to talk to people and it's like no i'm not representative of of entire groups of people i'm just a human being who has x set of things going on but i can only speak for my myself and my experience and i can also share anecdotes but i can't say this is how everybody with POTS feels. This is how everybody with EDS feels. It is great that you and other folks that we get out there and we share our personal experiences, our personal understanding, and sort of our personal histories so that the people who don't want to say anything can still have role models and people that they look up to and people who they can say, well, okay, so David did it. He's the business development manager at Rare Revolution. So that's a kick-ass job. Sorry, it sounds like a kick-ass job to me. I wanted to ask you about that. There will be people coming behind us who really do need to see themselves in society. And so you are kind of one of those people. People see you and see what you do and see your, you know, that you're going out and you're speaking or you're uh, on podcasts or you're, you know, in publications. And so they can say, wow, okay, well, if Mm -hmm. he's done it, you know, that gives me hope that I might be able to do it too. So do you sort of have maybe any tips, advice, or thoughts for younger people who may be ultra rare, who may have like a completely different condition or, you know, a different rare condition, but who are feeling like, I don't know how I'm going to do life. I don't know how I'm going to do work because it it can be very challenging to integrate these parts of your life. Um, Yeah, that's an easy one. Uh, Just volunteer somewhere. That's the easiest thing you can ever do. And it's probably the best thing that I ever did. So, so when I left my sort of finance position I knew that I wouldn't be able to do it and that was like completely demoralizing um only looking back on it now realized I had probably quite a small mental health breakdown didn't really pick up on it at the time and typical man didn't really acknowledge it didn't do anything with it I felt very lost even that's a very big cliche but felt very lost early sort of 20s just graduated didn't know what I could do my health was terrible at that point it was a kind of very low obviously you know as well as I do that rare diseases fluctuate quite often and you might have a good year and then four bad years and you know so on so on and the best thing that I ever did was volunteering for Great Ormond Street Hospital which is those of you that don't know it's a really famous um, pediatric rare disease and sort of chronic illness hospital I would call it so for people that are younger and have different rare conditions that's quite often where you end up and obviously I was there from pretty much day one up until about 18, 19 so 
didn't have any money to give to them, but I thought I can at least give my time. So I became involved in various sort of panels and then led to doing talks for them for big charity events like, you know, Lloyd's Bank and things like that, where they used to have a, a charity event once a year and they wanted someone from Great Ormond Street to talk about, you know, their experiences of being there a lot as a child and a teenager and also what I'm doing now and, you know, all sorts of different topics. And that was honestly the best thing that I ever did because that really then pushed, you know, I, I didn't plan to become a public speaker doing things like that. That was never, didn't even consider that. I've always been confident and I've always been kind of mostly extrovert, but I've never, when I was at university, I, you know, I enjoyed doing the presentations we had to do and, and things like that, but um, never really sort of saw myself doing uh presentations about my health that was a different thing but actually that volunteering really kind of ultimately led to me work in this space because then um you know I was living in Cambridge for a long time and that is obviously a really popular rare disease hub in the UK and there's lots of different great organizations that are out there and did a few talks for Find a Cure which are now Beacon and um, Cambridge Rare Disease Network and there's loads of things that are going on in Cambridge um, and that really kind of got me interested more in rare disease and actually being an advocate then I end up working for the magazine it's all kind of gone from there so actually you know I can't promise that volunteering will, will be the same for everyone but honestly just it doesn't even have to be anything health related just anywhere like whether it's about a sports thing or um something to do with animals or I don't know whatever you, like you pick but volunteering somewhere will give you like so much confidence and you'll make you know I've made some lifelong friends from volunteering and it will give you some life skills. It will give you employment skills that are really transferable. Like, honestly, there's just so much good that can come out of it. Volunteer, that's as simple as that. That is so perfect. And, it, you know, it's, I always say, it's one thing for like one person to say, right, volunteering is really important. If you want to build your confidence, if you want to build life skills, if you want to grow in your knowledge, volunteer. Doesn't matter where. But when, here, when other people say it too, I think is really important because I can say it and someone can go, oh, okay, yeah, of course you would say that because you yeah. volunteer a lot. But then the more we talk about it, I think the more we kind of share with people that this can lead to really exciting experiences you never thought you would have. Definitely for me, volunteering led me to working on a book and I never thought I would help publish a book. I never thought I would be talking to publishers and getting, you know, can we have the rights to republish this? I mean, that was a crazy experience and I never would have seen myself doing that. There's so many things I never would have pictured for myself, but if not for kind of taking a leap of faith and saying, I'm not going to get paid for this, but it matters to me and it's really important. And it doesn't just matter to me, it matters to the people I'm helping. That helped create you know, new avenues, meet new people, gain new skills. And so every time I tell someone rare, not rare, whoever they are, volunteer, volunteer. I don't care if it's a, a, an hour a month. I don't care if it's virtual or in yeah. person. It will enrich your life. And it isn't just your life. It will help someone else. And that's great. So I'm super grateful that you also said that too. One of the many reasons why volunteering is so good is I'm guessing now, obviously I, I did all this kind of pre-COVID. So this was kind of almost before everything, everything became virtual or hybrid. But when I was doing it originally for Great Ormond Street, it was one Sunday every six weeks. Um, like it was like a whole day on a Sunday, but that's all it was. Just one day every six weeks. So like the main thing about volunteering is it, it's so flexible. Like you could do an hour a week, you could do 10 hours a month, you know, you could do three full days once a year or, you know, it's so random. And and you can sort of cherry pick what you want to do. Like if you want more, you can do more. 
if you want less you can do less or if you you know if you want to volunteer at two different charities to make up two different parts of your life that's also cool as well so that's the the sort of one of the uh, ways I guess where it will differ from a lot of work opportunities is that you know you're not sort of restricted to doing nine to five or anything like that it's you pick around what suits you and primarily suits your health that's the main thing as well so you know for for a lot of people volunteering is obviously it's not for everyone it's not realistic for everyone I get that but for a lot of people especially if you can do things remotely if people don't want to travel or don't have the energy or the health to travel then it opens up so much now it makes me think the other day i was asking for people if they could step forward to help read some of the nhs england guidance for genetic testing which is going to be changing in the or in england and presumably in wales and scotland and northern ireland i would assume following suit and one of the things that people have said to me is well reading all that documentation is a barrier for me because of energy time i have trouble with brain fog and so I said, well, what if I read it to people? (laughs) What if I like live stream reading it and then people can ask questions and we can try to figure the questions out together as a community? There are options like that. Sometimes you can see where there's a need and say like, can I help with that? Like not in a condescending way or like you need help, but say like, is there something that's a barrier for you to participate? And if there is like, how can I help move that barrier so I think people can also just do those one-off things like read a document you know or read an audiobook you know for someone if there isn't already an audiobook or find um what is it um Mm -hmm. captioning software to make an make a document or video more accessible if there isn't already captioning so volunteering doesn't just have to be like this static thing where you run a till at, at a charity shop or you know people often think that there are so many opportunities and especially within um social media a lot of organizations would benefit from having yeah. a social media manager so if that's the career you want to get into there's no harm in doing it on a voluntary basis and honing your skills and learning and then taking that with yeah. you into your career so everybody listening my call to action is yeah. volunteer please we need you everybody everybody needs a volunteer we we can do so much if we work together and it's also selfishly great for you as well because you learn skills and you can put that on your your cv so please volunteer everyone i think now is a great time to if you have any social media channels that you want to share with us where we can find you on social media or if there are any voluntary opportunities at rare revolution that you can share (laughs) that was an on-the-spot question but it just came to me so um so yeah what are your social media channels how do we reach out to you uh so the linkedin one that i use most uh, is david edward rose you can find me on there um or my instagram one that i use quite a lot uh is occipital horn advocate uh in terms of the magazine and something that might be interest um to some of the younger listeners uh we have uh, an internship program so we've uh, partnered up with some companies and they're offering internships you know varying lengths and all over the place um for different people with rare conditions that you know lots of people are lots of people that i've met and lots of people collectively we've all met have all said oh like working has been a huge barrier for a lot of people um in the rare disease space so the internship program is open to people with uh, rare conditions that are under 27 um looking to join something um, might be a great opportunity. Thank you so much for taking time today to talk a little bit about occipital horn. We had a great conversation about comorbidities and then of course the importance (laughs) of volunteering. Please volunteer everyone. So thank you so much for your time today. 
Hopefully I can have you back on to talk more about men's mental health because we all need to talk about that more. Does that sound like a plan to you? Yeah, that sounds good. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Signalize, a Dazzle Ferrer podcast. To stay up to date on the podcast and Dazzle Ferrer, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, Rare, R-A-R-E. And finally, if you liked this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media platforms.